to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse. I'm Jason Scorse, and I hope you all are doing great. So the title of this episode is America at its Best and Worst. And this speaks to the fact that the U.S. involvement in the Ukrainian war has brought out some of the best and worst aspects of American society and culture. And I want to unpack this a little. And so first, a little history. I was born in 1969, and so I have lived for many, many U.S. wars and military engagements across the decades. Almost universally, as I have laid out earlier, these have been horrible disasters and include many crimes against humanity. Some of these were not even full-out wars, right? But they were clandestine operations, like our support for military dictatorships and right-wing death squads throughout Latin America through the 1980s, uh, in which many, many innocent civilians were killed and massacred. And there's blood on the hands of Ronald Reagan and George Bush I. They are revered in many quarters. They should not be. This was illegitimate and evil. Some of our support during this time in the 1980s went to the Mujahideen in Afghanistan who were fighting the Soviets. And that came back to bite us pretty big time because a lot of the people we supported there morphed into the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. So even though we were supporting a righteous cause in the sense of, you know, against the oppression of the Russians... We were supporting some bad actors who then came back and bit us big time. Even the first Iraq War, 1991, which was really the first war where I was, you know, a fully formed adult or at least partially formed adult. You know, I was in my early 20s then. People look back at that as kind of a righteous cause, right? George Bush I, he rallied the international community. It went through the U.N., It was very limited in scope in the sense it was, we're going to get, you know, Saddam Hussein out of Kuwait. And so this was a righteous war. That is bullshit. This is a big myth um, that's perpetrated around this conflict. So let me break it down for you. First off, it was an environmental catastrophe. On the way out of Kuwait, Saddam's forces lit on fire all the oil wells on their way out. So it was just burning oil wells that, you know, let out a huge cloud of toxic smoke that it actually reached the Himalayas is how incredibly toxic this was. So environmentally, it was a disaster. And then when we kicked Saddam out of Kuwait, we told the Shiites to rise up and overthrow him. And it was kind of given the impression that we would back them. And we didn't. And so they rose up. They tried to overthrow Saddam. We didn't back them. And then Saddam massacred them by the tens, if not hundreds of thousands. And they were just slaughtered indiscriminately. And by the way, this then set up the conditions for 
our second war in Iraq because it was we got to go finish the job and we betrayed the Shiites so we got to go do right this time and you know all this kind of like bullshit kind of like you know we got to complete the mission kind of stuff so the first Iraq war was absolutely not righteous and really if you just think about it at its core of course Saddam Hussein invading Kuwait was not a good thing right but it was one oil despot invading another oil despot it wasn't like Kuwait was some shining light of democracy that some oppressive regime had rolled into it was one oppressive regime taking over another oppressive regime and it was a war for at least stability in oil markets right it wasn't there for us to go take the oil right you know there was the the chance were no blood for oil but again even though we weren't there to steal the oil to take it as a kind of a natural resource grab we were there because we didn't want Saddam to have full control over large segments of the oil market and hold us hostage like Russia is holding us hostage now so again 30 years ago we went in because of oil and here we are just as dependent or maybe not just as dependent but still dependent on oil um, markets and oil regimes so the first Iraq war was really another kind of pathetic moment in our long-term addiction to the black death the only righteous and truly righteous military engagement in the last 50 plus years since I have been alive was probably our intervention in the Balkans in the 1990s to stop the genocide of Milosevic I want to fully admit that back then you know when that conflict was going on I was in my late 20s and I was just a straight-up idiot on foreign policy I barely paid attention to politics back then you know even though it might be surprising since I'm obviously quite into politics now I really only started taking politics seriously from about 2000 on after George Bush the second stole the election from Al Gore and thus began this 20 plus years of insanity in America that we're still living under so I opposed the intervention in the Balkans without really knowing what I was talking about without knowing the details I just kind of had this knee-jerk kind of war is bad killing leads to more killing which is not always the case and there are times when aggressors invade other lands or engage in genocide with their own lands when it is justified for outside actors in the international community to intervene militarily to stop it and that was one of them so I was wrong I always want to be clear about that my knee-jerk simplistic opposition to the intervention in the Balkans was wrong um, again it was not I didn't have strong opposition because again I was just largely uninformed and, and my opposition was born of ignorance not conviction but since then almost all military intervention has been immoral and, and unjustified as I've laid out in previous episodes and so coming to the present now the Ukraine situation marks the first righteous act of military engagement for the United States in a very long time. And the irony is we're not even directly fighting in this war. It's a strange moment because we have no troops directly involved and yet we are taking very strong action on many fronts. We have these historic economic sanctions. We have huge military aid. We revoked Russia's preferential trade status. 
and were helping to rally and unite the world in opposition to Russian aggression. This is truly America at its best, competent, decisive, clear, and showing resolve and deftness. Biden is showing amazing leader, leadership, and it's just incredibly impressive. And again, I've said this many times, I was not a big fan of Biden. I didn't vote for him in the primaries. But you know what? There's probably none of the other Democrats right now who I'd be as comfortable with on this global stage in this type of conflict as Biden. You know, let's think about Bernie. I love Bernie. I love his opposition to the military-industrial complex. But would you really feel comfortable with Bernie at the helm right now? I'm not so sure I would. I think he'd be out of his depth. One other point I want to say about Biden is he is putting the national interest ahead of the short-term political interest of the Democrats. And Josh Marshall pointed that out in his podcast last week. And I really think you should let that sink in. I mean, how often have we seen our presidents put the national interest first, even if it's going to hurt their direct political you know, prospects in the near term? That is rare. That is a rare thing. And, and you know, knowing that inflation is going to get worse, that there's more uncertainty in the global economy, you know, and that this can spiral you know, and get even worse, um, you know, Biden's taking some risks that, again, are probably going to harm him in the in the short term. But he knows it's the right thing to do. And he's not backing down and he's not blinking. Right. This is a rare moment for someone like me to be proud of America on the world stage. Right. This is an example of how America can be a force for good. We come to the aid of people who are being attacked by fascists and stand up to aggressors and thugs. So I want to end this segment on this unambiguously positive note because I think it's deserved. The U.S. role in this conflict is outstanding and exemplary to date. After the break, I'll discuss other aspects of the American response that reveal our underlying pathologies and weaknesses that we must overcome if we are ever to become a truly great nation. Okay, so if the first segment was about the good, how Biden has brought out the best of America, now we turn to the bad and the ugly. First off, the Ukrainian situation is so black and white that it can help us clarify good and evil very easily. Those who support Putin and the fascists are evil. Period. End of story. And look, fascists always support other fascists. They have done this throughout history. So we're seeing even more clearly people take their hoods off. What's interesting is that even though most of the GOP is still fascist, Putin's brazenly cr criminal behavior and his just outright murder of Ukrainian civilians is even too much for some of them. So we're seeing many Republicans who to this day 
support the former president who blew Putin every chance he could get and tried to overthrow our own democracy. They know it's a bad look to openly support someone so obviously evil, so obviously engaged in a criminal act. Now, it's a good thing that these Republicans are coming out against Putin and largely backing the Biden administration. But I want to be clear here. Don't be fooled into thinking most of these Republicans are pulling back from the brink. They're not. They will continue to support fascism in America if it serves their ends, which it most likely will because, again, they are a fascist white supremacist death cult. But again, it's good that for the time being, most Republicans are not openly supporting Putin. I'll take what I can get. The bar is very low these days, but I'll take what I can get. And then the ones that still are, there are a few in Congress who are openly supporting Putin. I'm not going to name names because I don't even want to dignify them by mentioning their name on this podcast. Along with the Fox News commentators and former Trump advisors who are literally being shown unedited an RT, Russian television, because they're straight out Russian propagandists. These people are truly evil, right? And you may ask, how do you come back from openly supporting Vladimir Putin's uh, invasion of Ukraine? The answer is you don't. You can lie and make excuses, but we have the tapes. We have the evidence. We have you being the opportunist fascist pigs that you are coming out in favor of Putin. And then when you see, holy crap, maybe I shouldn't come out uh, you know, in favor of a fascist invasion in Europe. Then you kind of try to dial it back, but you're busted. You're caught, right? We know who you are. And we know where your loyalties lie. So these people, we should condemn in the strongest possible terms continually. We should never let them show their faces in polite society again without addressing them as the fascist pigs and apologists for Putin's war crimes that they are. So these people truly represent the ugliest parts of America. And luckily, they are easy to identify. Again, we have the tapes. It's not a secret. Now, on that note, I want to take a moment to do a little sidebar here about Yale historian Timothy Snyder, who I'll discuss further further in the antidote. I want to read a quote from him first. And, quote, Fascist ideas have come to Russia at a historical moment, three generations after the Second World War, when it's impossible for Russians to think of themselves as fascist. The entire meaning of the war in Soviet education was as an anti-fascist struggle, where the Russians are on the side of the good and the fascists are the enemy. So there's this odd business, which I call schizo-fascism, where people who are themselves unambiguously fascist refer to others as fascists. So I think this is very important, because like I've said many times, The right wing in America and around the world are projecting their own fascism onto others and taking part in massive gaslighting operations, right? It seems like Snyder defined this a few years ago, wrote about it in one one or more of his books, and so it's good to see smarter people than me making these points that, that I've been emphasizing, right? And again, 
You can't, you know, all day, every day, right-wingers in America on talk radio and, you know, are, and in newsletters and blogs are calling the left and liberals fascists. It's just their projection, right? They are the true fascists by definition, not by opinion, but by definition. And then they are trying to project that onto others to accuse others of the immorality and crimes of their own making. Now, there are some people that are peddling Russian propaganda um, in, in this group, along, of course, with Putin and his cronies, that are, you know, again, irredeemable, right? There is just no way you can come back from openly um, supporting Putin and using your media, you know, power to support Putin. You're done. You're dead to me. You're dead to polite society. And that's going to be, you know, an anchor you're going to have to wear with you the rest of your life. But the question is, what about the people who tune into these people and follow these people and watch them on cable news and on podcasts every day? I'm a little, a little easier on them because, again, it's always the, the people at the top who get the most blame and the ignorant masses who get less. But just ask yourself, what type of person listens to, for example, on Fox News, that whiny, conniving, walking shit stain who blows Putin on TV every night and says to themselves, wow, I can't miss an episode of that. I can't wait to tune in tomorrow. This is the real news. We're going to own the libs, right? So there are millions of people who feel that way, who, you know, who turn into Fox News, you know, or other kind of right-wing outlets, and they really think this is the real deal. Like, this moves them. They, like, can't wait to turn into the next episode. My sense is these people are far gone and probably never coming back into sanity and reason. I don't put them at the top of the evil hierarchy, but they're lost. These are zombies that probably aren't going to regain their humanity in this lifetime when you've gone that far down the rabbit hole. I hope they do, but I just don't think they will. Again, when you're deep in a cult, it's hard to get out. And so, like I've said before, our job is to contain the damage these people do and to weaken them politically as much as possible. But those millions, perhaps even tens of millions of, of people who really believe this stuff and are kind of on the pro-Putin side, they're American citizens and they have a right to be as fucked up as they want to be. Sadly, but they do. So moving on from the ugly, the truly bad response that America has had to the Ukrainian conflict comes in the form of more of this drill baby drill nonsense that we're seeing as people try to use this crisis as yet another excuse to make America even more dependent on fossil fuel. It's simply insane to hear Republicans talk about how green energy is to blame for our predicament when the exact opposite is true. Again, remember, projection. Blaming others for the things you do. It's our dependence on fossil fuels that has us in this bind. If it wasn't for green energy and fuel efficiency, we'd even be more at the mercy of the world oil prices than we are today. And Putin and the Saudis and the Iranians and the Venezuelans would have even more leverage over us. And drilling will do next to nothing to decrease world prices and it will only lock in more infrastructure and more global dependence for decades to come. Which again, of course, is great news if you're Russia 
Iran, Saudi Arabia, or Venezuela, the despotic petro-states of the world. As I mentioned last time, it's, it's pathetic to watch the U.S. going around the world begging these other petro-thugs to pump more oil. Right? Wouldn't it be nice if America didn't have to give a shit what Iran or Saudi Arabia or UAE or Venezuela does with their oil because we're off it for real? Not that we produce more, but that we're off it altogether, right? And sometimes I wonder, will America ever learn the most blatantly obvious lessons that are staring us directly in the face, that our foreign policies has been at the mercy of petrodictators for decades and that we must get off oil? Decarbonization is the only solution. And again, I'm going to devote another full episode to this soon. After the break, I'll come back with the antidote. Okay, so for the antidote for today, I want to start by saying that it's sad that America seems to need to get its identity through violent conflict, that that's where we feel most at home in the world, and that gives us the most purpose, right? That's just a sad testament. Again, we're doing right in Ukraine. It's great to see, but that we need violent conflict to get that sense of unity Again, it's a sad testament to where we are as a nation and a culture and where we've been for a long time. We desperately need a new model, right? something to strive for that is not military in nature, a unifying project that is affirmative and lasting. My candidate for this project is, is to build a true multicultural, multiracial, thriving democracy that helps lead the way towards true sustainability and helps reorient humans in a better relationship with the rest of creation. That's a mouthful, not a good bumper sticker. Don't know how compelling that is, but that's kind of my larger project. I want to be clear here also that I say creation in a secular manner, right? Because yes, atheists can use it. Creation is the life force that through evolution has created the world as we see it. Again, I don't know if my vision or a vision similar to this is compelling enough to motivate a significant number of Americans, but we have to try something new. And this brings me back to Timothy Snyder, the Yale historian. Ezra Klein just interviewed him on his podcast, and the antidote for today is that I ask that you listen to it in its entirety. I'm putting the link in the show notes. It starts off a little theoretical, But it builds and goes through a lot of history and gets incredibly deep. I mean, I just learned a ton. And at the end, he talks about the possibility that the Ukrainians have given us to reimagine our future that is incredibly poignant. I mean, I just want to say this this podcast moved me. Very rarely do podcasts move me. I just 
It was just so deep that I'm actually re-listening to it. I sent it to people. Everybody loves it. People are taking notes. It's just one of those podcasts you should need to just like save it, bookmark it, and we should revisit it over the months and years to come. I don't want to give away anymore, so just go and listen to it yourself. And so with that, everybody, I hope you have a great rest of the week. If you're enjoying the podcast, please share it with family, friends, and colleagues. Rate it, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. May the Ukrainians get some peace soon. I don't know what victory is going to look like, but I hope the killing stops and they can get their country back and then the rest of the world can help them rebuild it and make an even better and stronger Ukraine in the future. So with that, everybody, take care, be well, stay safe. Thank you.